I don't think it's a very controversial thing to say that money opens doors. That money opens doors. I think we see it all over the place. Money opens doors to owning a certain size of house, to getting a particular level of education, to enjoying a range of pleasures such as food or wine. Money opens doors to a variety of travel destinations, a quality of healthcare provision, a particular lifestyle experience, even getting a sort of job. Now, I suspect we all know this. We either know it because in our own experience, money has opened doors for us, or because we look with some degree of envy on the way in which money has opened doors for other people and not for us, and we feel that keenly. On this Mothering Sunday, I'm conscious from our own experience as a family that many mothers work to earn money to open doors that might otherwise be closed so that children can go on to school trips or enjoy a family holiday. So we know that money opens doors simply from our own experience, whether good or perhaps less so. But we also see the fact that money opens doors being illustrated on the news. There are two examples that came to my mind this week as I followed the news. First of all, the tragic ongoing story of people fleeing Syria and paying hundreds of pounds to cross by inflatable boat the short distance from Turkey to the Greek islands and hopefully onwards to northern Europe. When Annabelle and I were in the port of Kavala in northern Greece last autumn, we saw from our hotel balcony a ferry arrive from Lesbos and hundreds of people tramping off to waiting buses. It was hard to think that these people were, in fact, the lucky ones, the ones who could afford to pay to make the journey from Syria to the West. For them, money had opened doors, albeit in the most tragic of circumstances. The second example of money opening doors was as I followed the Super Tuesday results in the US presidential election campaign, and in particular followed, uh, reflected on the success of Donald Trump in the Republican nomination process. For him, money, and he has lots of it, has opened the door to power. For myself, it's hard not to see the comparisons between Trump and the Roman politician Crassus, who at the time of Pompey and Caesar used a mixture of populism and huge personal wealth to achieve power, albeit elected by the people. But it's not just Trump. You can't become president of the United States without having millions of dollars in your election war chest to spend on a campaign. Money opens doors. But is that all that money does? Our brief survey above would suggest that money is entirely a good thing. It opens up possibilities for new life, new lifestyle, and even new influence. Money opens doors. But does money close doors too? Or to put it another way, as well as money opening up new avenues, can it also take us down cul-de-sacs? And if it can, what are they? And what is their danger? We live in a culture where wealth creation is seen as an unquestioned good. But is that the whole story? Well, that's the theme before us this morning as we continue our journey through Matthew's Gospel, looking at things that Jesus did, the deeds of Jesus. So we've, we've seen Jesus heal and forgive sins. We've seen him do good on the Sabbath and appear last week transfigured in glory. But today we do something Jesus is not often remembered for doing, but which he did more often than we think. He challenged someone. 
We see Jesus encounter someone for whom money had opened all sorts of doors, but who needed to hear a challenge from Jesus. And I think there's a message for us all this morning, not because we're in exactly the same situation as this young man, but because we all handle money. Now, I should think few of us think of ourselves as rich. We always compare ourselves to people who have more money than us and think about what we'd do if we had their money. That's the way that we work. But the reality is we all handle money. And so we need a reminder of what money can do and what it can't. Now, if you're here this morning, perhaps for the first time, or you're here just exploring faith, don't worry. I'm not going to do something religious later on and pass around a plate. Okay? So don't worry. There's nothing going to happen like that. Okay? Uh, but I am going to help us remind about why Jesus is better news than even the best pay rise. And if you're here this morning seeking to go deeper in faith, I'm going to help us think to see money in the right way so that we can get a perspective on what really matters. So please take your Bibles and open them with me to page 987 as we look at Matthew chapter 19 together. There's Bibles on the seats just in front of you, uh, and there is a green batting order that shows you where we're heading this morning. Page 987, we're looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. And you'll see it, I look at it, I'm suggesting we're looking at this under two headings. Looking for life in the wrong place, verses 16 to 22, and looking for life in the right place verses 23 to 30. First of all, looking for life in the wrong place. Let's just set the scene. We're somewhere around, but not in Jerusalem, in the region of Judea. Uh, Jesus has, uh, on the journey, is on the journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, and this is his last journey that he will make down to that capital city. Uh, it will be his final journey as he ends up, as he knows, to the cross. And a man comes up to Jesus. Now, Matthew, in the course of this story, tells us two things about this man. First of all, he's rich, and second, he's young. Now, being young then was a little bit like being young now in the Church of England. It basically came anything up to 40. Um, uh, But the rich bit was significant, because the understanding in those days was that if you were rich, you were rich because God had blessed you. Uh, Therefore, uh, riches, or wealth, was a sign of divine approval. Uh, Therefore, this rich young man would have been a figure not only of some social standing, but also spiritual respect, because God's blessing was seen to be upon him. And this young man, as you see, comes to Jesus with a question about eternal life. Now, before we look at exactly how he frames this question, I want us to note one really important thing about eternal life, that phrase, and that's this. It's not just about what happens when we die. Eternal life is not just about what happens when we die. I mean, it does include that. We'll see that later. But it's a bigger idea than that. Uh, Somebody commented well once that the word eternal, to describe life, is as much about quality as it is about quantity. In other words, it's about how good the life is and not just how long it lasts. So eternal life is not just a life that goes on forever, but rather the good life, the meaningful life, the joyful life, uh, one that starts now and is not extinguished by death. Eternal life is real life. Eternal life is life in all its fullness. It's life worth living. It's the life for which we were made. Ultimately, eternal life is the life with the God who made us 
and loves us. Eternal life, therefore, is something so much more exciting and nourishing than something that goes on and on. With that clear, I want us to notice two things about this rich young man. First of all, he thinks that eternal life is something he can work for. He thinks that eternal life is something he can work for. Look with me at verse 16. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? You see, he realizes that for all his money, he doesn't yet have this life worth living. But he thinks it's within his grasp. And as Jesus gently points him to that life lived for God and quotes some of the Ten Commandments, it gets the response, well, I've done all these. Well, what more can I do? That's the thrust of verse 20. You see, this young man, he thinks that eternal life is something he can work for. He realizes he can't pay for it, like perhaps he does for most other things. But he expects to work for it through living a good moral lifestyle, lifestyle, one that he believes he's done. Now, it's not surprising that this man should think this way. If you've spent your life getting stuff through your own hard work, you'll expect eternal life to work that way too. Give me the rules and I'll keep them. Hard work and self-sufficiency, that, he says, is the way to a good life with God. First of all, he thinks eternal life is something he can work for. Secondly, to notice from this encounter, is that this young man loves money more than he loves anything else, including Jesus. You see, in one sense, Jesus tells him that he is right. He can do something to get eternal life. But it's not taking something on. It's giving something away. His problem is not as he thinks in verse 20 that he's lacking something. His problem is that he has too much. And so Jesus' instruction in verse 21 is to go, sell, give, come, and follow. Do you know, normally in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't say those first three. He just says the last two, come and follow. That's what Jesus generally says to people, come follow me. But here he says, go, sell, and give. Because this, Jesus realizes that this man's heart and life is cluttered up with the money that he has and the possessions that he owns. And that is stopping him from finding the eternal life that is found in the one that's standing right in front of him. And so he says, sort your heart out, and then come follow me. And the sad thing is that the man doesn't do that. He can't bear to leave his wealth behind, and he goes away sad. As one commentator writes, he has made a god of his wealth, and when faced with a challenge, he could not forsake that god. Now, I don't think we need to take from this passage that Jesus is making an identical call on us. Go, sell, give, come follow. I'm not saying that because that's a difficult message and I think we should avoid difficult messages. I have no fear of that. But but Jesus did not make this call to everyone he met. He didn't make it to Zacchaeus. He didn't make it to Matthew. People still owned things like boats and houses at that time and Jesus used them. But I do think we should pause and think, how are we like this young man? How are we like him? And I think we are like him, first of all, when we think that eternal life is something we can work for. That's what the man did. He thought that eternal life, that life worth living, was within his grasp. In my experience, there are two indicators that we're thinking like this. 
Indicator number one is pride. That's when we think that we've got this eternal life through our own efforts. We look with confidence on our own clean living, our compliance with every rule, perhaps our material well-being, and we think, brilliant, I've achieved that. And so we look down on people whose lives aren't as tidy and pity them with pride in our hearts because we know we've got life and we achieved it. That's the first sign that we think eternal life is within our grasp. The second sign of thinking eternal life is something we work for is the opposite feeling. It's despair. It's the feeling that we're never going to get this eternal life because we're just not good enough. We don't live as good lives as others. Our children haven't turned out as we wanted them to. We've done awful things that other people would be shocked if they ever found out about. Eternal life is to be worked for, we're sure, but we're also sure we're never going to get there. If that's you this morning, then I want to say, just like the rich young man, you're looking for life in the wrong place. Because neither pride or despair need to be the answer. There's a better way. And I'll come on to that in a moment. So we can be like the rich young man if we think that eternal life is something that we need to work for. We can also be like him when we actually love money more than we love anything else, including Jesus. Now, I'd be surprised if any of us say, oh, yeah, absolutely, that's me. Oh, yeah, I love money more than anything. We don't think like that. But what might be the signs that that could be true? Perhaps when we find it really hard to give away money when we find ourselves bitter and resentful about having to hand money over to anybody else or give money to the poor, or perhaps when we find ourselves taking decisions where at the bottom line it's the money that counts, when we take that job because it pays more money even though we're going to see our children less, but it's the bottom line, the number at the salary slip at the end of the month that really matters. Or when we find living a simpler life, as Richard Foster encourages us to do in our book, Celebration of Discipline, that we're reading as a church, we find it really hard to live a simpler lifestyle because we're so used to our possessions. If you think it was just the rich young man who got his priorities wrong, we're deluded. There's a great book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, when the empty promises of love, money, and power let us down. Uh, There's a couple of books on the bookstall. It is a brilliant diagnosis of what other things take the place of God in our world today. This young man was looking for life in the wrong place. He was looking through it through his own achievements and his own wealth, but both of them were cul-de-sacs. But there were people who were looking for life in the right place. Because this passage doesn't end with this rich young man walking away from Jesus. And there's encouragement as Jesus engages with the disciples who've clearly been privy to the encounter. Yet encouragement is the very last thing the disciples initially feel. For as they see this rich young man walking away, and hear Jesus' summary of the encounter in verses 23 to 24, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were horrified, verse 25. They were greatly astonished. That's Bible code for gobsmacked. 
You see, given they thought that riches were a sign of God's approval and blessing, if the rich couldn't get eternal life, who could? They're the very people who God loves. If they weren't able to get eternal life, what chance did they stand? Poor little fishermen from Galilee. Jesus realizes their confusion, and he goes on to give two statements which correct the very two things that the rich young man got wrong. First of all, he says, eternal life is something which God gives, not which we earn. Eternal life is something God gives, not which we earn. Look with me at verse 26. With man, he says, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, Jesus is saying that no one, however rich or good they may be, can earn eternal life. It is something that God alone makes possible. It is something that God gives. You see, Jesus is saying eternal life, this life in all its fullness, works in a different way to virtually everything else. Jesus recognizes that most other things we work for in some way or another. But he says, eternal life we don't. We receive it from God as a gift. How does that happen? Well, it happens when, first of all, we realize we don't deserve it and that we can't earn it. That there is nothing we can do that means God owes us eternal life. So we need humility about ourselves and who we are before God. That, by the way, I think, is why so many rich people find it hard to receive eternal life. They are so used to getting things on their own terms and in their own power, they simply can't get their heads around the fact that we don't deserve eternal life. None of us. We receive it as a gift when we come to Jesus. If we want to have a life worth living, If we want to have this eternal life, all we need to do is open our hands and receive the love that God has poured out for us when Jesus died on the cross and the Holy Spirit that he pours out on his children that assures us that we are loved by God. That's the life that God gives for free as a gift. A life where we know we are loved. A life where we know we're forgiven a life where we know we are held, a life where we know we have meaning, a life where we know we are safe. That was the encouragement for the disciples that day. Jesus said, you don't have to work for eternal life. You just have to receive it. And the second encouragement was this. Jesus said eternal life was about this world and the next. Because Peter, in verse 27, answers him, we have left everything to follow you. What will there then be for us? It's a natural question. These, after all, are fishermen who've left their boats, traveled from Galilee to this strange place of Jerusalem, and they have left everything. They've done what the rich young man refused to do. Jesus' reply is very clear. He is honest about the cost of following him, of putting him first. He recognizes in verse 29 that following him may mean leaving homes and families and property because following Jesus means putting him first. 
But he says that the future blessings will be so much greater. Indeed, he says a hundred times as much when Jesus comes again and the new creation is inaugurated. In other words, he's saying eternal life, he said, should not just be judged on this life, but on the life beyond the grave. I want us to be very, very clear on this. This world is not all there is. There is a world to come when Jesus comes again, which is better and richer and more joyful than we can ever imagine. If anything tastes nice in this life, it is but an appetizer for what it will taste in the world to come. Now, that can be really hard to get into our heads when we are so busy enjoying this life that we've got. There's nothing wrong with that. God made this world, and he made the pleasures for us to enjoy. But remember this. This world is not the main event. It is simply the preparation time. The great Christian writer C.S. Lewis tries to put this in words at the end of the Narnia Chronicles when the children move from the shadowlands into the real Narnia. These are the final words of the last book in the Chronicles, the last battle. And I quote, For them, it was only the beginning of the story, the real story. All their life in this world and the adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Eternal life is not a celestial retirement home with angelic voices on 24-7. Eternal life starts now with knowing the love of Jesus in our hearts. But it doesn't finish now. Beyond the grave, it just gets better and better. I started earlier by saying that money opens doors. It's good that it does. There's nothing wrong with that. If it didn't, it meant I wouldn't be able to fill up my car with petrol this week. But today's passage gives us a warning as well. Money can also close doors. When money makes us think we can get everything ourselves, we miss out on the fact that eternal life is not something we earn. We come to Jesus and we receive it as a gift. And when money makes us think just about this life and what we can see and touch now, we miss out on the eternal realities that we will either spend eternity with God or without him. So let me end this morning by suggesting that we do something with our hands and our eyes. First of all, can I ask you to take your hands and just hold them out in front of you? Look at them. Just look how empty they are. There's no credit card there. There's no riches. There's no possessions. There is nothing that qualifies you for eternal life. It is God's gift to you in Jesus as you open your hands in repentance and faith, will you receive that gift of eternal life that starts now and continues beyond the grave now?
And secondly, with your hands like that, can I encourage you to do something with your eyes? Can I encourage you to look at one of the windows in our church, one of the windows with stained glass? It may be one at the front or at the sides. It is probably colourful and beautiful. But beyond that stained glass window is a life more colourful and beautiful still. As we do that, remember the new creation promised to all who follow in Jesus in this life and the life beyond the grave. Whatever we are sacrificing to follow Jesus at the moment, the joys of eternal life beyond the grave will be the great reward. Money opens doors. Indeed it does. But the door to life, to a life worth living, to eternal life, is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Let's walk through it.